0: Then let's turn to that psalm, Psalm 77, and let me read, first of all, verses 1 to 9. For the director of music, for Jeduthan of Asaph of Sam, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and my soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld his compassion? Well, it's good to see some uh, the boys and girls here as well, and just before we look at this passage, I want to just tell you something, that, uh, a little bit about what this passage is about. Um, there was a minister on the island of Lewis who was asked by his wife to go and collect some shopping, so to drive into Stornoway, and because he's a man, he doesn't really know very much, so he's given a list to remember. And he goes off with the kids and uh, comes back, very pleased with himself, lifts the bags, takes them in. And his wife says, have you forgotten something? And he was, no, I don't think so. He checked the list. He said, where are the children? And he'd left them in the supermarket in Stornoway, had to drive back and get them. Well, if, I think if you're a, a child, to be forgotten by your parents is a really bad thing. Um, imagine it's your birthday and nobody remembers. Uh, to be forgotten when you're struggling, and I think not just as a child but as a parent, uh, maybe to be forgotten by your children or any of us, to feel that we are forgotten is a horrible feeling. Um, But this is the worst for the Christian to feel that they are forgotten by God. I think we present a picture of Christianity which is quite unrealistic many times. It's kind of it's not health and wealth teaching, but it's very close to it because what we do is we, we say, well, I'm a Christian, so therefore Murdo spoke very um, clearly about his own situation. But please don't imagine that as a Christian, you're seriously ill and everything's great. It's not. And you do have these thoughts. So uh, let's just think about this, and then we, we come to how we remember, and we remember in the Lord's Supper. Now here... The psalmist is under intense suffering. So what do you do? You pray. But there's a warning here, because look at what happens. There's a teaching about prayer that's well-meaning and that's based on truth, but it's not the whole truth. And it kind of says that the more you pray, the more fervent the prayer, then the more likely God is to answer and give you what you want. Now, that's not true. Because sometimes a fervent prayer can come from a heart which does not accept the God-given circumstances, which says, if only I pray enough, then it will change. Sometimes God allows us to be ill in order to encourage us to pray because we've got nothing left. But the real prayer is the prayer that asks the Lord for healing but accepts what He says. And when I um, read through Murdo's book, I read it uh, a while ago just as it was being uh, obtained. I was very uh, intrigued by the last chapter where Murdo talks about marriage and so on. Then he talks about the illness and says, This terminal illness seems so unfair, yet we both trust that God is working it for good. To me, that is real faith because real faith isn't this terminal illness seems so unfair and so therefore God will deal with it and God will heal it. And if only we pray enough, in fact, that if only we pray enough can be something that is very cruel or can be cruel at times. I never ever forget having a friend as a teenager who was in a wheelchair and who was told by an evangelist, if only you had enough faith, you could get up out of that wheelchair one of the most cruel things I've ever heard said to anybody. Because here the psalmist prays, and look what he says. He became exhausted with prayer, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. He, he had sleepless nights. That's, that's what he says. Look, you kept my eyes from closing. I, I, I was too troubled to speak. He had to learn to rest on the revealed will of God, on the revealed truth of God, not just what he wished, And at this stage, he couldn't. He was struggling. He ran out of words. He prayed so much, he had no more words. Samuel Rutherford says this, tears have a tongue and grammar and language that our father knows. Babes have no prayer for the breast but weeping. The mother can read hunger in weeping. We think that we can come to God and we know what to pray and we have the words. And then one day, you come to God and you have nothing to say. You can only cry. The pain and the struggle and the depression and the discouragement are beyond words. And some of us have experienced that. I remember personally, and forgive me for saying this from a personal point of view, when I was in Uh, Hospital in 2011, Annabelle was so good and so loving and so gracious, and I found it so hard to say what to pray for. I didn't know what to pray, and the Psalms were just so good to have, but you can run out of words. You can have a sorrow as a Christian that your words cannot express, that you cannot reason yourself out of. Look at verses 5 and 6 where he has memories of the past. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused and my spirit inquired. He remembered what had happened. He remembered what things had been like. He remembered the happy days. But instead of that encouraging him, it made him depressed. He was depressed and so he remembered the good days and that made him more depressed. Why? He remembered God's favor. Look at what he says. God's favor, God's unfailing love, God's promise, God's merciful grace and God's compassion. And instead of that encouraging him, what it did was depress him because it made him ask, where are they? What's happened? Have you forgotten? Have you rejected? Will you never show your favor again? Calvin understands this beautifully because it's a very precise point emotionally. He says this, Satan often craftily suggests to our thoughts the benefits of God that the very feeling of the want of them may inflict upon our minds a deeper wound. In other words, Satan comes to us and says, God is loving, God is kind, God is gracious, God is good, God is merciful. And he does it not to make us feel that, but he does it to make us feel the absence of that. Hankering after the past, writes one man, is no remedy for the present and no recipe for the future. You, you, you remember what it was like in the past. You remember those days when you sang in the night, when you didn't weep in the night, you sang. And instead of encouraging you, it makes you weep more. The psalmist has come to this point as a believer where he fears that the promise has failed, the compassion's withheld, the grace has been forgotten, the love has has vanished. And you see, as a Christian, you come to church, you hear God's word, you hear other Christians say to you, you read, God is gracious, God is compassionate, God is loving. And that just makes you feel worse, not because you doubt that he is, but because you don't experience that he is. Now, it's possible that when Asaph wrote this, it's possible that this may have been about the fall of, Of Jerusalem a complete disaster it is a promise that God had made that seemed to have failed I think um, maybe only twice in my whole life have I been absolutely certain that God had promised something and it didn't happen and it is a very shattering experience and that's why from verses 7 to 9, he questions, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has God in anger withheld his compassion? And I want to say to those of us who are Christians that let's not be too quick to judge those who find themselves discouraged in their Christian faith, and let's not be too glib with our answers. Let's be very careful ourselves, because until you've gone through this experience yourself, it it's maybe seems something that can easily be solved. But I don't think it can. I think that God ha- allows his people to go through deep waters. Murdo said about praying that God would work in his life and make him more aware of him. And that's a great prayer, but it's also a dangerous prayer. Because sometimes in order for that to happen, God has to go deep and to cut deep because we, we can just become so trite and so superficial. Has God forgotten? Those of us who are Christians, let's acknowledge that we can have these experiences and these feelings and these fears. And let's be thankful but the Lord has provided us in his word, words that e- enable us to express them. But go on to verses 10 to 20. Then I thought, to this I will appeal, the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will meditate on all your works and consider all your mighty deeds. Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is so great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. "'You display your power among the peoples. "'With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, "'the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. "'The water saw you, O God. "'The water saw you and writhed. "'The very depths were convulsed. "'The clouds poured down water. "'The skies resounded with thunder. "'Your arrows flashed back and forth. "'Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. "'Your lightning lit up the world. "'The earth trembled and quaked. "'Your path led through the sea.' Your way through the mighty waters, though your footstep, your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, why is this different? Why is, why is there this shift from these first few verses, God, why have you forgotten, to this confidence in the great God, the holy God? And you'll notice, if you examine it very carefully, you'll see why, because it's a new approach. He's not now looking at God as the solution to problems, nor is he looking back to his previous spiritual experiences. But instead, he's turning from himself to God. And that is so hard to do. Because one of the ways that we often present the gospel to people is... You need this, you have this, and here is the gospel, and it provides it for you. And our experience then becomes very focused on who we are and what we have. And so you're seriously ill. You, you need healing, so you, co- you go to God to look for healing. You're just depressed, and you know that your your mind needs healing, and your heart needs healing, and you go to God for healing. You're, you're spiritually backslidden, and you know that you need to... to to come back to God, so you you come to Him and you ask for that. But the thing is, what we are doing all the time is focusing on ourselves, and it's it's so hard for us not to do that. But here is the the, the beauty of of what He does. By focusing on God, it enables Him to see Himself in a new light, and to understand something very different. See what He does in these last few verses. In the, in these first verses, it's it's, I remembered, and this was my, in my eyes, and this is the experience I had, and, and everything like that. And here, it's you, and your power, and your works, and your mighty deeds. And what he's doing here is, instead of remembering the songs that he sang, and remembering the experiences that he had, he remembers what God did. And, and actually, he doesn't. Not literally remember, because what he writes about is the Exodus, and the... the Egyptians being taken through the sea. So what he's doing is he's coming to the revealed will of God, the revealed word of God, and he's remembering. Just as we we come to the Lord's table and we remember the Lord's death, what, what do you mean we remember the Lord's death? Were any of you around when Jesus died? No, you have no experience of the Lord's death. How can you remember? How can you remember something you have no experience of? Because you come to God's word, Spurgeon puts it brilliantly. He says, when faith has its seven years of famine, memory like Joseph in Egypt opens up her granaries. Now, that's a very simple thing. What he's saying is sometimes your faith in God is tremendous. You have that peace of which Myrtle spoke. You've no doubt at all about the goodness of God and the love of God and the experience of God in your life. But then sometimes your faith has a famine. And what you do, instead of giving up on the faith, is you go to the granaries, if you like, of God's Word and what God has done, and you do not let your experience and your feeling be the determining factor in your faith, but you let what God has done in the past be that. And notice, before He looked from afar. Yet now he meditates on all your works and considers all your mighty deeds. Now I want to suggest something to you that I know you are tempted to do when pain hits. It's to take a painkiller. And not in the physical sense. I have um, some pain just now and I I take painkillers. And... um, That's good, but it's not dealing with the problem. It's just helping you get through it. And some of us live our lives spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, where we kind of take painkillers. Now, what what do I mean by that? Some people, for example, say, you know, I'm going to forget God because it causes too much pain. I cannot wrestle with this. I cannot cope with this. This is too much for me. So, they get absorbed, for example, in worldly business. Your job's a good thing, but your job becomes all absorbing. It's all you think about. It's all that you do. You turn away from God's world and God's word, and all that absorbs you is the immediate and the here and now and what you are directly involved in. You can see that in some ways um, sometimes when somebody gets really discouraged or overwhelmed with things. That's not my particular way of coping with things, but they clean. They just go and they, they just scrub from the house from top to bottom. Somebody dies and they clean the whole house because it just helps them cope. Some people just I- indulge in um, endless soap operas. Or maybe my particular thing would be I would go and I just read lots of books. Just to get absorbed in these books is just wonderful. But what God wants to happen, and this is what's being said here, is that we are not to forget God, that we are to come with all our pain and our sorrow. And we are not to focus on our pain and sorrow, but to focus on Him. So that's why... uh, the rest of Psalm 77 you find in Exodus 15, basically. By the blast of your nostrils, Exodus 15:11. The waters piled up. The surging waters stood like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue. I will overtake them. I will divide the spoils. I will gorge myself on them. I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And I don't think that it is spiritualizing the word of God at all to see this and to see what's said in Psalm 77, as God saying, sometimes I lead you into deep, deep waters. That overwhelm you. But just as I led the people of Israel through the Red Sea, so I lead you. And you'll notice the emphasis here is on the character of God. The holiness and the greatness of God. His wonderful acts. Your ways, O God, are holy. His unique purity. His goodness. His independence. His freedom. Which we do not have. We are constrained by our circumstances. We are constrained by our limitations. But God is not. We are constrained by our sin. But there is nothing evil in God at all. What God is so great as our God? It says, your ways, O God, are holy. The... Um, I really probably should have spoken to Will about this beforehand because there's a debate about what the Hebrews really saying because the old version has it, your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. And people prefer to translate it, your way, O God, is holy, though it's not the normal word used for holy because God in the sanctuary, why, is, why does that sound nearly as marvelous as God being holy? And yet I think it is because here I think it's saying that God's way of holiness is in heaven, in in his temple, in his dwelling place. And what we are really being promised is that we we will be brought to that dwelling place. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And so the psalmist is caused not to think upon his own particular circumstances, but on the holiness and the greatness of God. And then on God's display of power among the peoples. Look at verses 14 and 15 with, you're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. Now know what's interesting there. He doesn't say, you're the God who performs miracles and so you're going to save me in this situation. He's saying, no, no, you are the God who does this and you're able to do and therefore I trust you, whatever you do. There's an identification with his own people. With your mighty hand, you redeemed your people. And again, that's so important. Because whatever you are faced with, let's say that you are faced with a serious illness. Let's face that you, say that you are faced with very strong discouragement or problems at work or in relationships or just, just overwhelming stuff that's piling upon you and piling upon you. And you're wondering how you cope. And we're being told... Look at God, look at who he is. But you're also being told this, look at who he's for. Your people. We are your people. And that is so wonderful what God has done for his people in redemption. When we sit at the Lord's table, it's Jesus saying, you're my people. This is my body. This is my blood that's shed for you. You're my people. And that matters much more than any particular circumstance that we are facing. And verses 16 to 18, God's power over the forces of nature. Uh, I love it. He says, the water saw you, O God. The water saw you and they writhed. But human beings don't see you. God has this power over nature. But human beings don't see that. We think we have power over nature. We think we have power over God. God. And so God goes on to lead his people. Verses 19 and 20, your path led through the sea. He's now no longer saying that things are not what they used to be. He's saying that God is what he used to be. He's saying that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's saying the Lord is our shepherd. He's saying that though he may lead us into deep waters, our God is totally free and totally holy. Wherever he leads, he will provide. There's another passage in Scripture which is very similar, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was faced with the same problem. God is the Holy One, and God's holy city is about to fall. How could a holy God allow such evil? How could a good God, a loving God, allow such evil? Well, William Cowper, whose hymn we sang this morning, paraphrased the last verses of Habakkuk in this way. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanted fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. That's what this psalm does. This psalm talks about somebody who had forgotten how to speak. Who'd worn himself out in prayer, but who learns how to sing because he ends up looking away from the waves and looking to Christ. Joseph Thrupp says this, there are seasons when even the holiest faith cannot bear to listen to words of reasoning. Be careful with that. Sometimes someone's really hurting and really painful. Now, I I like reasoning with people. And I want to sit down and say, you've got this, this, and this. And here's the answer. This, this, and this. And let me take you logically from this step to this step to this step. That's not always wrong. But it's not always adequate. It's not always enough. And sometimes silence is better. There are seasons when even the holiest faith cannot bear to listen to words of reasoning. Although it can still find a support whereon to rest in the simple contemplation, in all their native grandeur of the deeds That God hath wrought. Sometimes in your Christian faith, you will reach a most painful but a most blessed position. The pain is this that you've got nothing. Nothing. Not your faith, not all the people around you, not your reason, not all the good things that God has given you. They seem to have vanished and to have gone. You've got nothing except this. You remember that Jesus died for you. And that he is the son of God. And that God is for you. And that God leads his people. That's why this psalm ends, it seems, abruptly. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Well, couldn't we have something a bit grander than that? No. That's it. Except we remember That the Lord is our shepherd. That's what we remember. You may be in a position this evening where you cannot empathize with or identify with the pain of the psalmist. Please don't forget it though. Because one day you will. And you will need to do what this psalmist does. You will have those times when you weep in the night and it never answers. You will have those times when the blackness and the discouragement and the despair and the depression overwhelm. And you will be tempted to analyze and to examine and to look at yourself and to ask why and to try and find a way out. And it's like being in quicksand. The more you struggle, the deeper, the quicker you sink. And instead, you need to lay hold of the plank, if you like. You need to lay hold of the rock. You need to stand on the rock that is God and His holiness and His goodness in simple contemplation, as Thrupp says, of the deeds that God hath wrought. If you were very seriously ill, And God came and healed you, it would be a truly wonderful thing. As I said, some of us have experienced that. It would be an absolutely wonderful thing. But it pales into insignificance compared to what we remember here this evening that Jesus came, the Son of God came, that he lived, he taught, he performed miracles. He was crucified and died the most horrendous death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. And every time we sit at the Lord's table, we remember that. And as we sometimes sing, may I never lose the wonder of the cross. It's so easy, isn't it? We teach it to the children and we remember it like children. In a wrong way. Jesus died for me. That's all I need to know. Yeah, but you need to... Rely on it. You need to experience it. You need to feel it. So much so that it is a more wonderful truth that Jesus died for you than that Jesus heals you or Jesus gives you money or Jesus solves your life, all your problems. But that Jesus died for you is, that's it. It There really is nothing deeper or more wonderful or more powerful than that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you allow us to see into the deepest experience of Asaph in this agony that he felt, wondering why you were allowing these terrible things to happen to Jerusalem and to your people and to him. And yet, even as he reflects on this and as he reflects on how his prayers seem to have failed and how he ran out of words and how he couldn't sleep. And how even when he remembered your goodness, it just acted as a dagger to his soul. Lord, we bless you that he was able to look to your word and to realize that as as you rescued your people from Egypt, so you rescue your people today. And Lord, we bless you that we have just a, a far greater insight in that we can look back and remember your death until you come. And put all things right. But in the midst of this world. In the midst of the ups and downs that we have. In the midst of our own fickleness. There is one thing that is absolutely certain. Christ died for us. According to the scriptures. Christ was raised. And you O Lords, You freely give us. Along with Christ. All things. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not past, present, future, demons, not sickness, not death. It cannot separate us from your love. Help us, each of us, to know that. And may it be that if any of us here do not know you, that even as we hear about this, that we would long to know you and that we would give ourselves to you. And bless us as we sit at your table to experience and understand as we remember your death. In your name, amen. We're going to sing another part of that psalm, Psalm 77. We're going to sing from verse 7 to verse 14. Um, Forever will the Lord reject and never show his grace as he withdrawn his steadfast love and turn from me his face. I've forgotten the tune, Stephen, but you can. Salzburg. Let's stand and sing
1: the tune, Salzburg. Forever will the Lord reject and never show. Oh!
0: For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sometimes we understand the Lord's Supper as a remembrance in a very shallow way that, oh, it's just reminding me about. Whereas remembrance here, as we see in Psalm 77, is something that is profoundly feeds us now because it tells us that everything is okay because Jesus died for us. That's what we remember. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this bread and this wine which speaks to us so clearly of your body broken for us that we might be whole and of your blood poured out for us that we might be forgiven and cleansed. Granted as we eat and drink together, we do so to your glory and experience and know your presence with us in your name. Amen. Now, the elders will pass out the bread and the wine. When it comes to you, you just take and and eat and drink. Um, If you are not a Christian, uh, you're not a a member in the church, you've not been baptized, then uh, please just pass it on to the person beside you. Um, Do not take it. If you are a believer and you feel that you're unworthy, well, you are. But remember that Christ is the one who makes us all worthy. So let's eat and drink to his glory.